0: God, thank you for this day. I cannot say that enough. Your mercies are new every morning, and each and every person who is sitting here is a testament to that. God, thank you for being merciful to each and every one of us today, waking us up, bringing us here, allowing us opportunity to know you more through your word. God, I pray that's exactly what would happen in the next few minutes. Lord, would you empower me to speak only what you would have me to speak? And would you give each of us ears that want to hear you and hearts that are willing to respond? God, if there's anything I say that's not from you, just please let it fall to the ground, blow away, and let nobody remember it. anything that is of you, would you be so gracious and so kind towards us to really make it sit and grow in our hearts by your Holy Spirit? We need you, and we want you. And it's in Jesus' perfect name we pray. Amen. All right, guys, my name is Kim, and I get the privilege of speaking next on the next portion of our passage from Romans 5 of how suffering leads to endurance, and endurance leads to character, character leads to hope. Um, And all of that was couched in the previous verses of chapter 5 of we can rejoice in our sufferings which just doesn't make sense. But as Courtney unpacked last night, as Casey unpacked previously this morning, um, hopefully we're getting more and more of a vision and excitement to see just how God is able to do what does not seem possible. How when he is allowing us to feel undone, he is actually doing something. And that's good news for us, and that's good news for the rest of our world, because there's lots of opportunities to see how things are getting undone, how things are not going the way we would plan or we would hope, um, and we need to know that this is not it, that this is, the not, this is not the last say. So, um, a little bit about myself, I am married to one of the pastors at the Hallows Church, and we moved here about six-ish, seven-ish, somewhere around that, years ago to help start the church, and um, it's just been a beautiful process. And a lot of the process has been unpacking this very topic. Um, As all of you guys are part of a church plan, or most of you guys are part of different church plans around Seattle, um, I'm sure you've had experience with this as well, Um, being part of churches where um, the gospel is not loved, that it's not necessarily embraced as a whole, um, that provides lots of opportunity. Opportunity to experience rub and pressure. Like Courtney said yesterday, one of the main definitions of suffering is a pressure. So that can be small, that can be large, it can be short-lived, it can be long-lived. But with these opportunities of pressure, we also get the opportunity to see more of Jesus and to become more like him. So that's where we're going today. Um, I'm glad that Casey spoke right before us. Like Courtney said, there's a reason. Uh, Indeed, her family has experienced much suffering in the last few years, and it made perfect sense that she would speak on endurance because she has lived it, (laughs) and she is living it. Um, she was gracious to share with me even this week. She's had reminders and lessons of what endurance looks like. And it's not just grit coming from yourself. It's not because you got it all together or because you're perfect or you know it all. Um, but it's exactly from what she said. It comes from Christ and seeing his example and resting in him. So... Then, what have we seen in Casey? She's going to be so mad I'm doing this. (laughs) But what have we seen in Casey for those of us who've had the painful privilege of interceding with them through their different seasons, from when they're in the hospital with their newborn baby um, to her previous experience with anxiety, like she shared? What have we seen? Well, from this last venture with Levi this last year with um, his brain bleed, I know, honestly, there was a question in my mind when I got the call that they were in the hospital of, oh, Lord, how are they going to be able to handle this? She's already been struggling. They've already been struggling. She's already had to walk through anxiety, and now there's a real thing, (laughs) like a real tangible reason to worry, to be scared, to fear loss that will potentially change their lives forever. How could they possibly endure this? Mm. But like Casey said, he had been using her anxiety and her struggle with it to prepare her for such a moment as that. He had already been using what seemed like undoing of her to do a great work in their lives, through their lives, in their community and beyond. They had people praying for them and following their story from all over the country. People that don't even know them, but they know their story, and now they know their God even better as a result of what God was doing and how he was preparing them to endure that suffering. So what did we see come from that example in their lives of endurance? How did it lead to character? It led to the fact that the Casey I met seven, eight years ago is not the same Casey I know today. Casey back then was awesome. She was great. We asked them, please come to Seattle, (laughs) help plant a church with us. They're those kind of people. But she's still not the person she was then. And the Casey now, I wouldn't trade her for anything. (laughs) And I bet if you would ask her as well, and you have opportunity throughout the rest of the day, she would probably say the same. So I am glad she spoke on that because she and her family are living living examples of how we can rejoice in suffering because suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And Courtney will wrap us up tonight with how hope does not disappoint. So let's start then. Look at your outlines if you would like to. We're going to start on the first point, endurance produces dokeme. We have a lot of um, connections to Japanese outreach, and every time I've said this word, I giggle a little bit because I feel like I'm speaking Japanese, which I really love. Um, so I don't know, maybe there's some similarity, but this is the Greek word that is used in this passage, and it's Dokeme. And it's basically the idea of proven character. I mean, we kind of generally know what character is. It's this mental, ethical traits that combined kind of describe a person, right? But character here is a unique word that's only used a handful of times in Scripture. Dokume, which means proven character, approved, tried, tested, and demonstrated. Basically, it's kind of like if your Facebook profile picture shows people what you look like on the outside, it would be your profile that kind of describes you, right? Your more intangible qualities, um, what you like, your personality, your loves. Um, you might be able to tell through the things that you repost. Or are you, what kind of humor do you have? Um, are you truthful? Are you deceptive? Are you joyful? Are you a little bit um, less joyful? Are you strong? Are you compassionate? Are you self-centered? These different things. That combined is your character, what describes your character. And so it's interesting that it's not just enough to be character, but it's proven character is what talked, what is talked about in this passage. This idea that our character has to be tested. It has to go through some trials. It's just like in science class. Do you guys remember that science class where you couldn't just say, This is how it happened, and this is why this happens. You actually have to test out your theory, right? You have to test out your hypothesis to see if it's true or right. Same thing with our character. Proven character has to be tested see, is that really you? Is it really right? Also similar, it's kind of the idea of training. If anybody here is into your health, I know that Jocelyn just came back from spin class. She's a teacher for spin class on Alki Beach, and... Um, You know, I probably couldn't walk into her class and be like, scoot over, I got this. Trust me, I can lead this class, because I've literally never done a spin class. class. And I don't have great physical endurance. So even though I could say, I'm in great shape, I can do that, no problem, it would not be true. And right when you put it to the test by putting me in front of the class, it would be obvious that I was not physically fit um, in that way in a lot of ways, but in that way, especially. Um, and so just by saying it or thinking I'm physically fit isn't enough. Sometimes you have to actually put it through a test, a trial. So cared character, with that proven aspect of it, as I think about it, and as you guys sit there and think about it, is it really possible to test out our character apart from suffering? I have thought about it a lot a lot, a lot, a lot over the months. And I just don't see any other way around it. And I don't see any way around it from scripture either. The Lord uses everything. He uses prosperity to help us lead him to see, lead to see that he is the giver of all gifts, right? But in the same way, he can use our poverty to see that he is the giver of all good gifts and that we need him and that we rely on him. Just like diamonds come from coal being put under extreme pressure, our character that's described here that we'll see ultimately is to reflect Christ has to experience some pressure. And throughout scripture, like I said, God doesn't hide this from us. Jesus says, in this world you are going to face many trials and tribulations, but take heart because I have overcome the world. He doesn't leave that part out simply because he wants people to follow them and he knows that sounds scary. (laughs) He doesn't just hold back because it's hard to say that and to admit that life is gonna be hard, regardless if you believe in Jesus or if you don't. But if you believe in Jesus, let's be honest, there's gonna be some extra pressure there. He doesn't hold back and so we shouldn't be scared to either because there's good reasons and good purposes. And even ultimately, if particular sufferings may not have a reason, you can't say, well, this equaled this equaled my suffering or this is why or this is why. As Casey said, we can trust in our God to endure even when we can't see the why, but we can see the who which I'm excited about because we get to talk about it a little bit more in my section of the who we get to learn about through suffering. So God, first of all, can use our suffering to reveal our character. Character is kind of a combination of our loves and their orders as well as beliefs. Our loves and their order is where we'll start. Our loves often drive who we are. Let me give you an example. If you love sports, um, you grew up in a heavily um, sports-saturated family, you may just naturally love really good things that come from that. You love the camaraderie. You love the atmosphere. You like to exert yourself physically. All good things, right? Great things. You're using the created body that God gave you. You're using your people skills to get along with teammates. Good things. Not a bad thing. But what if this love per se, became greater than your other loves, particularly your love for God? How might that affect your character? What if the main voice and the main important weight in your life was your coach's voice, who may or may not know Jesus, and maybe their priority is just win? We need to be the best. Stop just hanging out. You need to get in here. You need to fight. In fact, I think I could spur you on if I help pit you against some other teammates. Hey, you want to start? You got to get better than her. You got to do this. And that starts to become the main voice of, all right, if I'm going to be something, if I'm going to succeed, if I'm going to win the affection of my main love, that I just need to be more competitive. I need to start putting myself before everybody else. I need to treat everybody like they're a rival. And I could see and I have seen even in my own life how that can even then start to come off the court, right? That can come off the field where it can be you start to treat relationships as a win-lose situation and you're going to win. You can treat arguments or conversations as a one-upper. It can translate into all these other things where all of a sudden a characteristic, a main characteristic of you is competitive, which doesn't always, in that type of sense, where it's pitting yourself against others, trying to put yourself above them, be more significant, doesn't necessarily reflect the wisdom we see in Scripture, right? Putting others before yourself. Count others more significant than yourself. Yeah. Where Carly is working for man and that can include sports, but if that becomes your great love, that can affect even who you are and your character. Does that make sense? Moms in the room, if you have a mom, your daughter, any of those? Moms, you probably experienced this. It's good to love our children. In fact, I'm pretty sure we're commanded to love God and love others, right? First great commandment or the sum of the commandments, love God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind. And then Jesus says, in a second, is similar love your neighbor as yourself. We're commanded to do that. But what if we start to love even this good thing, this good person, this good child, this good parent more than God Himself? How then can that cause a problem? How can that affect our character? I can see how if your desire is to hold the love of this person, or to love, you want to hold on to them more than anything else, that it's possible you become a jealous person more than just merely a loyal person, right? You could be deceitful versus honest to keep their good opinion of you, to keep um, favor with them, to keep them from being upset with you. And so that can affect your character if that is your love greater than i love god so i'm able to love you well and so therefore i'm going to let my love for god affect my character more than my love for you c.s lewis puts it this way he says it's probably impossible to love any human being simply too much we may love him too much in proportion to our love for god but it is the smallness of our love for God, not the greatness of our love for the many that constitutes the inordinacy. You catch that? When good things become the God thing, that affects character. And in suffering, when we are in the midst of seeing the loss of some of those great loves, those loves who would become greater than God, it's often those times that that comes to the surface where good things have become God things. It doesn't mean God's going to take away all those things and and that those are bad things or there's bad love. But it can mean that the Lord, in his wisdom and his kindness, can use suffering, can use pressure to reveal some of these things in our character, to test it and then to change it later. Beliefs is another aspect of our character that composes our character, I guess is a better way of saying that. When suffering comes, for instance, we may begin to question who God is, who we are, what is good, what is bad, what is really right, what's really wrong. A question could be such as, do I think deep down that God doesn't let bad things happen to good people? Maybe most of us might say generally probably suffering happens to everybody, but, but seriously, bad things shouldn't happen to good people, right? (laughs) Like, they should be honored in that way. If you faithfully follow God, if you're generally moral, like, you shouldn't have to experience suffering. You shouldn't. So what happens when suffering does inevitably come? What happens when you do lose your job, when you do have a coworker turn on you, when you do have a spouse leave you? when you have a loss of child, when you're not blessed with a child? How do your beliefs in those matters surface? Your beliefs about God, your beliefs about yourself, your beliefs about others. We may not even realize it sometimes that we have certain beliefs that are distorting the gospel until suffering comes and it comes bubbling to the surface. Prodigal brother, for instance. Many of you guys might be familiar with that story in Luke, but with the prodigal son is traditionally how it's told. Um, You have Jesus telling a parable to give insight into who the father is. And he says, and his love for people, and basically, he gives this scenario with his father having two sons, and the youngest of the sons comes to him after he has spent what we imagine to be years of raising him, caring for him, loving him, teaching him, teaching him what's good, what's not bad, what's right, what's not wrong. And the youngest son basically says, I'm done. I'm done with you. I'm done with this. I, in fact, would like to treat you like you're dead to me, so go ahead and give me my inheritance, if you will, and I'll just go and do what I please. I know better than you. I want him my way instead of your way. And to the shock of all the listeners, um, in Jesus' story, the father gives it to him. Like, doesn't give it to him, like, gives him the money. (laughs) Like Gives it to him and sends him on his way. And so, basically, the younger son, as you may know from the story, He goes off, he lives to the full what he was expecting, but he didn't get what he expected from it. He did not get the satisfaction. He did not get the joy. He did not get the life. He did not get the flourishing he thought he would get. Instead, he ended up basically wishing he could eat the food that the pigs were eating. So, in the very bottom, 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 bottom of the pit, he decides, Even my servant, even the servants in my father's house get treated better than this. I got to go back. But how is he going to accept me? And so he's sitting there thinking, how is he going to accept me? I'm going to go back. This is my plan. And before that rebellious, hurtful, prodigal son even gets to the door and is able to say what he had planned to say, I am so sorry. Will you take me back? Just let me be part of your household, not even like son status. The son, the father meets him. The father extends grace and excitedly comes to him, sees him coming, meets him, embraces him, takes him back in, forgives him, and even throws him a party. (laughs) Like this guy hasn't partied enough, but throws him a party to show just how lavish his grace is. But the interesting thing is the story doesn't end there, which is shocking because you kind of thought this whole time that's who the story was about. But then we see an interesting note in the rest of the passage, in the rest of the verse, that the older brother, the elder brother, the one who stayed, the one who followed the rules, the one who we would assume exhibited a lot of good moral character and characteristics. He was loyal, he stayed, he worked diligently. He was mad. He was mad at the father. He was mad at the father for showing such grace and kindness to the other son who did not deserve it like him. In that pressure situation, that suffering of the elder brother feeling the effects of what he perceived to be unfairness, um, injustice maybe, um, being slighted, it was exposed that maybe his character wasn't as tried and trusted as he would have thought. Maybe a lot of what he was doing and who he was was actually fueled by the desire to get things from his father, not because he loved his father, not because he respected his father's example and wishes. He was bitter and he was self-centered, and that came to the surface in the midst of suffering that wasn't even necessarily had anything to do with him, but he still experienced that pressure at the end. So suffering can also be used by God to reveal our need, um, areas that we need to repent. <laughs> In that moment, unfortunately, the story ends. It would have been really nice to hear, and the father said, oh, son, I'm like, I love you. Check out how you're acting. What is this showing? It's showing you're self-centered, and bitter and I desire more for you and he repented and they embraced and they all went and party, but they didn't. <laughs> that's not how the story ends. But that doesn't mean that's where our story has to end or can't end if you find yourself in that elder brother position, right? Where you tend to be the rule follower, you're characterized as being loyal and dependable and obedient until you're shown, ooh, maybe you're not actually obedient For love. Maybe you're not actually as selfless and hardworking for others as you thought. Maybe it's more self-centered than you realized. In those moments, that's an opportunity that we can repent. God, I need you. I need your forgiveness. I'm sorry. In suffering, it can be areas where we simply realize we're not as strong as we thought. Neither sinful, not neither sinful or not, just not as strong. (laughs) So we simply need God. It could be areas where we think that we're patient because generally I've been patient with people and then you get married. Anybody else experience that one? That was a good one. Um, Maybe you thought that you were self you were selfless. Oh, I really enjoy serving other people, and I'm so easygoing. Like, I I am like the picture of easygoing. I am willing to serve you. No problem. Like, I would never say this out loud, but I'm such a catch. And then you get married, and you're like, whoa. He probably thought he was tricked, and I kind of feel like I tricked him myself. Who am I? Um, I'm not speaking from personal experience. I am speaking from personal experience. It's awful. You could realize, you might think, oh yeah, I'm super like, I'm super independent, like in the good way, like I'm not super needy, but I'm also dependent enough because I love Jesus, I know I need him, until suffering happens and causes you to be really needy, like to be the kind of needy where you can't give anything else to anybody else, and you realize." man, I need from God and others more than I could have ever dreamed. It can show that we're proud because we've had an easy life and you just don't realize you're proud. (laughs) You don't realize it until you're humbled sometimes. And suffering has a way of humbling us. It's easy to think that, oh, I'm not trying to be sovereign like God until you lose control of a situation. (laughs) And it's literally out of your hands. And you realize, I don't like how that feels. And there's things surfacing of how I act, how I'm lashing out, how I'm, how I'm responding in anger. I am not quick to listen. I am not slow to speak. I am not slow to anger in all these ways. And it's coming. Because now you might have an opportunity where finally for the first time you've lost control of a situation around you. And the good thing is, though, that's all... Tools that God can use to lead us to know Him more and to depend upon Him more, which is the gospel, right, guys? The gospel is not you need Jesus at the beginning and then you like peace out and you do everything good to make it up. No, nobody can handle that. You can't handle that. I can't handle that. That's not a burden we were even meant to bear. There's no way. Like Keller's quote, this all comes together. Um, Timothy Keller, a theologian, a pastor in New York City, he wrote Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. I would highly, highly recommend that book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. He says, when something is taken from us, our suffering is real and valid. Hear that, ladies. Courtney covered that last night, but I know there's new women today. We're talking about touchy things today, and in no way hear that your pain and your suffering is not valid and that it's not real. But often, inside, we are disproportionately cast down because the suffering is shaking out of our grasp, something that we allow to become more than just a good thing to us. It had become too important spiritually and emotionally. We looked at it as our honor and glory. The reason we could walk with our head up, we may have said to others, Jesus is my savior, his approval, his opinion of me and his service is all that matters. But functionally, we get our self-worth from something else. In suffering, these something-elses get shaken. In King David's case, most of his suffering was perfectly valid. To lose the love of your son and your people and to be falsely accused was searing pain. But he also realized that he had let popular opinion and earthly esteem become too important to him. He recommitted himself to finding God as his only glory Here then is what we must do when we suffer. We should look around our lives to see if our suffering has not been unnecessarily intensified because there are some things that we have set our hearts and hopes upon too much. We must relocate our glory and reorder our loves. Suffering almost always shows you that some things you thought you couldn't live without, you can live without if you lean on God. So that brings us to how God can use suffering to reveal his character. We know, can know certain things about God's character through creation, right? Romans 1 tells us this, such as his internal power, his divine nature. He is other, like look outside, look around right near. We clearly did not create that, but to know God more particularly, it does require God revealing himself personally throughout history, and ultimately by taking on flesh, becoming like us, that we may know him better. Colossians 1, 15 says, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The invisible becoming visible. So what did he reveal about himself when he took on flesh? For our purpose of unpacking how God used suffering to reveal character, both ours and his, let's look at Jesus in the midst of the suffering of three followers, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So, It'll be up on the screen. You're also welcome to turn in your Bible. Feel free to turn your Bible because there's lots of things that you could circle and underline. John 11, 1 through 44 is where we're heading. Okay, it is a meaty passage, but stick with me. It is worth it because it definitely helps us to see God's character in our suffering and at least in their suffering and are able to put ourselves in that place. John 11, verse 1 says, But a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Do you guys remember them from anything else, Mary and Martha? Remember, Martha was all about the serving, taking care of things when Jesus came to the house. And she was all mad at Mary because Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him, spending time with him. Um, So Jesus lovingly corrected Martha when Martha wanted him to correct Mary. It was very interesting. I see myself as Martha often. Now it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So does Jesus love Lazarus? He loves Lazarus. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death it is for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So again, who does Jesus love? All of them, right? Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Is that what you're expecting from the next line? That's never what I expect for the next line. God, if you love me, you will come immediately, right? To my rescue the way I expect and a vast. But... He says he loves them twice, or it is said twice, and then he waits longer. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. What? So that you may believe. But let us go to him so Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So he goes on. This is an important passage on he is the resurrection and the light, life. I'm only skipping over it for time purposes. You should not skip over it. It is important to our gospel understanding. But I'm hopping down to verse 28 that says, when she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, Saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled he felt suffering he felt the pressure and he said where have you laid him and they said to him Lord come and see and Jesus wept so the Jews said see how he loved him But some of them said, could not he open the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb, deeply moved again. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. They have been in despair, suffering for days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. You always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out and his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him, and let him go. This passage is particularly soft and close to me, because this is a passage that the Lord has sent me to in a time of deep discouragement. Um, I would say Depression. It lasted a long time. I couldn't control my tears. My my children were asking me, Mommy, why are you crying all the time? And while I didn't despair in my soul, I knew it was well. My soul, I knew my soul was well, but it did not feel well. Things did not feel well. I could not see how the Lord, in the here and now at least, would bring himself glory and care for people's good. Care for my good, my family's good, to be honest. And I had questions in my journal that said things like, do you even hear anymore? Do you care? Do you see? Why are you letting us experience this? This makes no sense. The only thing I can think of is, you don't care. You're not with us, this is not true. You are not true. And he sent me here. And you can maybe imagine how it comforted my heart. Because the other question that was coming up over and over is, have I done something wrong? Do you not love me? Is this what your love looks like? To be abandoned, to be forsaken? He answered in this passage. Do you see how he answers us in this passage? How he answers in their suffering he showed more of his character. We can know things about God in general, but through Jesus, we see more of who he is and his character, and we see that he is present. He was present even when he wasn't present. He knew what was happening. He kept up. He even told others he's dead. He knew somewhere else what had already happened to Lazarus. He was wise. He chose his timing perfectly, perfectly for their good and for his glory. He was compassionate. He wept, guys. He was troubled in his soul. He grieved, even knowing that he was going to go and take their suffering, undo the harm of death in that moment. He knew that, and he still wept. He still was troubled. He was still stirred. He is a compassionate God. Like I said, he is timely. He is not like me, who is not always timely. He is right on time, even though they even accused him of, like, hey, if he had been here earlier, this wouldn't have happened. He knew what he was doing. He came right on time. His timing isn't always our timing, but his timing is always better than our timing. He's intentional, he's sovereign. He's all-knowing, he's good, he's loving. He did this because he loved them. Did this, what I'm referring to is he waited in his response, he waited in their suffering, he allowed that opportunity of Lazarus being sick to bring glory to himself and bring good for the people. Let that encourage your heart and your mind today Let that speak into those questions that come up when you are suffering. Pray, believe those things for your friend who is suffering. They may not want to hear it in the midst of their suffering, in the middle of the hard. But you hear it, and you believe it, and you intercede for them. So, seeing God's character in Jesus' suffering... We won't read Mark 14 through 15, but you could and should at some point soon. Please, let's, if we're talking about suffering this weekend, let's actually look at his suffering. But again, for time's sake, let me just summarize with, think about, sorry, this is gross. All right. We didn't see that, guys. I bought a bunch of tea, Kleenex boxes. None are right here. All right. Anyways. <clears throat> hey, thank you, Emily. Um. Ugh. Sorry, guys. I'm a germ freak, so this is like my nightmare. All right. And being pulled into a dance circle at Sarah's wedding. Other nightmare. All right. So what we see, sorry, God's character in Jesus' suffering. We see God's character through people's suffering. We just saw that, right? So now what do we see through his suffering? Well, think back to all that he endured, guys. What did he endure? for us, for the joy set before him, he endured just about every single type of suffering there is. He experienced emotional suffering. He experienced spiritual suffering. He experienced physical suffering. Physically, you know, he was beaten. He was spit upon. He was he was whipped till he was tattered. Our God stepped down as if it wasn't humbling enough to step down and to be put into diapers immediately, pooping in your own, like whatever. Like, that's humbling of a God right there. But he ends his life here on this earth like that, being beaten, being abandoned by the people that followed closely with him for three years. Three years. Peter denied him three times. <laughs> right after he very proudly said, not me, God, I won't turn my back on you. The pressure of the situation, though, sure did allow the real truth to come out, right? And the truth that he needed Jesus' grace just as much as every other person. We saw that he was betrayed, he was abandoned, he was physically hurt on the cross, and even in the garden. Garden, we see a prelude to this. In the Garden of Gethsemane, don't we see Jesus talking to the Father saying, "If it's your will, could you let this cup pass? Can there be another way? Could this just something what just this? but not my will, Lord, but yours. Not my will, Father, but yours." Jesus honestly struggled. He grieved And was it just the mere, like, physical? Was it he was sad that his, like, best friends were going to abandon him? I don't know, maybe, but probably not. Like, the real, real unfathomable rub for us, guys, is that if he took our place on the cross and so we don't have to endure the punishment that we deserve for completely turning our back on him, to rebelling rebelling against him, Experiencing that separation for ourselves, he endured that for more people that I can even begin to imagine. That separation from the Father that he had never had to experience before. And I don't know how that happened exactly. I don't know. I can't. I don't, I don't think we can say. But we can see is that on the cross, when he, when he cries out to the Lord, there is something happening there where he is feeling the weight and the burden and the isolation, the forsakenness of being left alone, having the father's back turn on him for at least even that moment with the weight of millions of people crushing down on him. I would ask the same thing in the garden. (laughs) But by God's grace, by God, Jesus being God, he said, but not my will, but yours. And he continued on. He endured to the cross because he knew ultimately what would happen. Three days later, he didn't stay there. He didn't stay dead. He was risen. He was glorified. And we got to see him. We get to see him. That's amazing. So this helps us in our suffering because it now speaks into those questions. It speaks into those deceptions. It speaks into worldly logic that often add up together to produce who we are gonna be, who we wanna be, what example we wanna take. And God can use suffering to produce Christ's character in us. I'm gonna go quickly through this next part. But God uses suffering to produce Christ's character in us. Becoming more like Christ, though, is a process. He gives us a new heart, he gives us a new family. He gives us a new identity when we step into relationship with him, when we turn from our own ways and turn to him, trust in him of who he is, what he's done, what he will do for us and in us. But that's still a process because it's like being brought from an orphanage into a new family. Just because you now have a new name, you have a new identity, you, are, you have a new home, a new future, it doesn't mean automatically you know how to live like that. <laughs> it doesn't mean automatically you know, hey, in this house, mom and dad, like that's not how we treat each other. We don't yell at each other when we're mad. There's a learning curve, right, of what it looks like to be part of that family. And in the same way, that's how salvation and sanctification works. You are saved immediately, but God is doing a work over a lifetime. And then ultimately, salvation ends in glorification, becoming like Christ. And this is interesting, guys. We don't have time to go through, which makes me so sad. But go back to Genesis 1. Genesis 1. Who were we created to be like? anybody? God. He said, let us make, let us make, that's interesting, right, Trinity? Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Guys, we were created to show his likeness. And so in salvation, he restores that, he repurposes that, he recreates that image in us over time. So take heart, it is happening, even if it feels slow." And even if there are times when it is going to hurt or is through hard situations. It's like 2 Corinthians 3.18, we are reminded, and we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Are being transformed. It's a process from one degree of glory to another. And it is glorious to look like Jesus. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Becoming more like Christ is God's purpose for us. Again, recreating us in his image. He created us in his image. Adam and Eve didn't think it was image enough. They didn't believe that they were already created in his likeness. And so Genesis 3 tells us, the serpent says, he doesn't want you to eat from that because he knows you will be like God. Guys, how crafty is that? It's true. It's true. You will be like God because you're already like God. (laughs) He's trying to make them think that they're not already like God in the way he intended. And yeah, they'll be like God more knowing good and evil, which is what the serpent says. But man, it sucks on this side (laughs) to experience, to know good and evil now. But God does use that, does use surfing, Reuse suffering for that purpose of making us more like him. He works all things together. Romans 8, 28 through 29, we know that those who love God, all things work together for good and for those who are called according to his purpose. We're conformed to be in the image of his son. Regardless of the situation, God is at work transforming us more into his image. We can rejoice in that and we can see that he's doing it for our good, just like we talked about at the beginning, suffering adds heat to our lives that exposes any disordered loves, any shaky, ungrounded beliefs about God and others and ourselves that are mixed into the image of God in us. So like gold, even though we become like gold, a treasure in Christ, there still needs to be impurities. There still needs to be things that need a to surface to, to get rid of, right? So we can be more and more purely like Christ for me when I went through that time of depression, when I was hospitalized in Vietnam for a week in a room by myself after I got, had set this all up. So basically I left my two-year-old with my husband here and I went to Vietnam to spend time with my family to tell them about Jesus. And I had this all planned out in my head of like it's worth all these sacrifices because the last time I went to see my family in Vietnam, I had so many good gospel conversations and one of my aunts literally said to me, if this Jesus is true, how come nobody's told us about him? And so my mom and I spent the rest of our trip telling them that I was excited about going back to continue the conversation, to continue to show Jesus to them, to supplement with words what my mom was showing them through her deeds, because that is one of the most striking images for my family is to see how different my mom, who used to be Buddhist, like all of them, how different she is now that she is a Christian years later. Her character is totally different. And that is the thing they bring up every single time they see her year after year after year. So I was going thinking, great, now I'll get to actually speak the words because I'm a little more mature and further along in my walk with Christ. I can supplement what she's seeing. And then I was stuck in a hospital for five days by myself in a foreign land. And I was angry with God. That was not my plan. That made no sense. How does this glorify you clearly? Something's not right. But through that, that did provide opportunities for me to see things that I was believing that wasn't quite true. Such as, as long as I come up with a plan that's good, God will follow along. Um, In my character, I can be content if things go my way. If they make sense especially if they're for jesus i can be content if they're going along my way so the lord used suffering in my life to start to bring out even more things and to form in me more patience more contentment more joy more peace more love more humility i came back and it was literally the first time in my life where i experienced the i cannot give anything to anybody I had a doctor tell me after I came back with dengue fever that continued on with chronic fatigue, you need to go home and do the bare minimum. Angie wouldn't even let me go to missional community, our small groups. I was so mad, <laughs> literally could do nothing. But through that time, God was using that to show me that I thought in a lot of ways that I was God, that I was so needed, otherwise everything else would fall apart, that it's okay to give lots and lots and lots of help to others, but it's not okay to ask. Like Courtney said last night, it's okay for others to share their burdens with me, but I don't want to burden them too much. That was pride in me. That wasn't humility. That wasn't other-centeredness. That was pride. These things surfaced, and the Lord used that suffering to refine my character and to continue to refine my character now. Which brings us to others' good. What does it mean for a community to see other believers actually looking like Jesus? And not in perfection, not in these ways of like steadfastness, and, but in humility, in brokenness, in dependence upon the Father. You don't become dependent often unless you're forced to become dependent. It is good for others to see that in you and how he is developing his character in you. Second Corinthians 1, we won't have time to read it, but also another passage I would highly recommend. Basically, Paul, Paul, who wrote... The biggest chunk of our new testament he himself goes in to say that he shared with the corinthians all of his sufferings actually we are we're going to read this this good blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ the father of mercies and god of all comfort who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we selves are comforted by god for as we share abundantly in christ's suffering so through christ we share abundantly in comfort too if we're afflicted It is for your comfort in salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. It's an example. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you also share in our comfort. And he goes on to say in verse 9, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. That's pressure, guys. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. They've experienced the suffering. They've seen Jesus come through. They've applied his character. And so they're able to continue to have hope. And so you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. He sees it all interconnected. He sees what God is doing through suffering is for our good,' is for your good, for others' good, and ultimately for His glory. It is hard for us to appreciate just how inconceivable the sol- inconceivable God's holiness and glory is apart from experiencing at least some of what He experienced. It sounds bad when you read through, like, Mark 14 through 15 and what he experienced pre-cross and during cross. But when you start to experience even just small glimpses, when you've been betrayed, when you have been lied about, when you've been accused, when you have endured some kind of health ailment, and then you sit back and you go, and God willingly subjected himself to this and worse, for me and for others, that is love. And that's inconceivable. That can't help make us appreciate and understand more of his attributes and then want to become like him in that way as well. It makes us say things like John the Baptist said, I must decrease, he must increase. So how can that not glorify the Father? when his children want to become more like him. And suffering is one of those ways. We don't seek it out, but when it comes, we can rejoice knowing that he'll enable us to endure. Endurance leads to becoming more like Christ, putting on his character, being tangible expression of the invisible God And it enables us to praise him more, to be more astounded by his love, his grace, his faithfulness, his gospel. So let us pray. God, thank you so much for this day. Please allow our conversations over lunch to be fruitful and edifying. God, would you continue to help us to be sensitive to your spirit as we converse, as we process. Help us to receive grace as well as to give it. In Jesus' perfect name we pray. Amen.